In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, may you guide us throughout this hour. May you lead us to the fullness of your truth. May we discover who you are, what was your ascension, what does it mean for us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. St. John, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. I thought it'd be good to look at the ascension in the Bible and actually just look at the actual texts and imagine we're walking into a basilica or something like that and I would be an art historian and we'd be going through each one of the different like sculptures and looking at this sculpture or that sculpture, this work of art and that work of art. And as we're going through the basilica, I'm going to point out some aspects of it, but obviously I'm not going to explain each work of art. I'm just trying to highlight major things that we'll find in the Bible about the ascension of Christ. So we're walking through and seeing different aspects. So in this class, it's going to be mostly like that. It's not going to be a coherent, logical class where I go A, B, C, D, where everything follows consequentially. It's much more like we're walking through an art museum and looking at the different paintings that tell us about the ascension. Okay? Now, I want to start out with the Gospel of St. John. The Gospel of St. John is um, not going to speak directly about the ascension. Um, The ascension, remember, is happening after the 40 days, after the resurrection or so, and It's going to be Jesus ascending into heaven. We'll read directly the passage in the book of Acts and the other Gospels. But that's not going to be directly mentioned in the Gospel of St. John, not the story of him rising. Uh, What we are going to find in the Gospel of St. John are things such as the story of Mary Magdalene. And let's read the story of Mary Magdalene. This story of the life of Mary Magdalene and Jesus is happening after the resurrection Remember that Mary Magdalene was at the cross. She was deeply wounded herself by the cross. She was weeping much. She had that one last consolation of taking care of his body. She comes early in the morning to the tomb, and she finds the tomb empty. And she goes back, she tells the apostles, and the apostles, at least John and Peter, run run to the tomb before her. After they, they arrive at the tomb, she comes behind them, and we have this next story, which tells us something about the ascension. So let's read through it. And that would be John chapter 20, verse 17 or so. I'm going to take it um, from 11. And we'll stop only at 17. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain. 
one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Saying this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? Supposing him to be a gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have carried him, where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned to and said to him in Hebrew, Rabuni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not hold me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and said to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. So we find that first statement that I'm bringing up right now, where he explicitly says that he is ascending to the Father. So that tells us already where he's going. He's going to the Father. There's also that enigmatic uh, and, or strange and difficult to understand statement where he says, do not hold on to me. There's other passages in the Gospel of St. John, especially in chapter 16, where he's going to say similar things. We read it in daily Mass a couple days ago. Um, you are sad now because I told you that I am leaving, but it is better that I go. But I tell you, it is better that I go. You should be happy that I'm leaving. For if I do not leave, I cannot send you the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. Here we find again someone who's sad because he is leaving. He's left, really. He's dead. Somebody who's deeply sad. And when he's alive, he's resurrected, she's going to hold on to him. She's going to hold on to him. Why? She's holding on to him emotionally, that's for sure. She's holding on to him on a human level that we can all understand. We all have that attachment in life. But she's holding on to him on a strictly a human level. And she's not letting him be God. But she's wanting to reduce him to something less, like a a friend. Like a friend. He's, of course, a friend, but it's going to be a totally different kind of friend, right? It's going to be a totally different kind of friend to be a friend with God. And if we emotionally hold on to someone, we don't enter into what we call a true love or a spiritual love. If I emotionally hold on to someone, I become needy and selfish. A true love remains selfless in respecting the other in where they're at. And so he's saying, do not hold on to me. Let me go to my father. And when he's at the father, then in a certain sense, she's going to be able to hold on to him, maybe. Yeah, hold on to him insofar as she respects that he is God. But let's, come, let's go to another layer. We can come back to this when we're looking a little bit more in the next couple chapters. But so there's Mary Magdalene and the announcement that he is going, the finality. We want to start out with that. He's going to the Father. The famous saying in Latin, vado ad 
patrem, I am going to my father. It's something that you'll hear come back quite a bit in any kind of spiritual literature. I go to my father. Chapter 13. Just the first couple verses. He doesn't um, tell us about the Eucharist directly in this Last Supper, as you remember. But he'll start out this Last Supper with the following statements. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that the hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, and girded himself with a towel. And he's going to go forward and wash their feet. He's going to go forward to wash their feet. But already, what he's doing in this Last Supper is to prepare for his ascension. Notice again, he's saying, Vado ad patrem, I am going to my father. So when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is going to be his gesture showing he loves us all the way. He loves us with all all of his being, all of his heart. He's going to wash our feet. He's going to go unto the end. And so... We see another aspect that he's going to prepare his departure with the Eucharist. He's going to leave, before he goes to the Father, he's going to leave a way for us to partake, partake in him or participate in him. And that is through the Eucharist. That's him going all the way to the end for us. as he's going to the Father. Perhaps here he's showing a way for Mary Magdalene to hold on to him. Our founder would often say that he gave the Eucharist for Mary, Mary, his mother. Um, And it's definitely true, because if he did it for the Christians in general, he did it especially for Mary, because she would be the primordial Christian, you know? So it's definitely a true statement um, that he gave us the Eucharist. He gave the Eucharist especially for Mary because when he ascended into heaven, her heart was again broke because she loved him as a mother. She didn't love him in a sinful way which would be too overly attached. She didn't, that's why we'll see it represented in another person, that kind of aspect. But she still naturally would want him to be there. And she had to let go. So in order for him to still stay with us, he gave the Eucharist. 
So it's interesting. This text puts the Eucharist in the light of the ascension. And it's like, it says, well, it says literally, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. That's a nice statement. It's literally expressing that thing that comes back a lot in theology, is that all of creation and all of the world comes forth from him and is called back to him. We say that for all of the world, all of, the, all of us too, most especially. But he in particular, his incarnation was to become one with us through the incarnation, but not just to become one with us, to take us to the Father. And it's very explicit. It's why it's nice to come back to the biblical text. So, walking through the Basilica of Scripture passages on the Ascension, let's look at some more. Let's turn to chapter 14. Let not your hearts, verse 1, by the way, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And when I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you, take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. It's interesting. Only he has access to the Father's house. Did you notice that? He has access to the Father's house. And if he goes to the Father's house, which is the ascension, he's going to prepare a room for us. So it's like he has to go and unlock the door to the house so that we may enter. And there he prepares a room for you. And there are many rooms in that house. And so he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. That's another aspect about the ascension. Only he has access to the Father's heart. Only he has access to the Father's house. And so his ascension is very important. He has to go ahead of us to unlock the door. Therefore, there is a certain concluding moment in the ascension. It's like the conclusion of the incarnation. It's not conclusion in the sense like it ends but the conclusion of the work of the incarnation, the accomplishment, the fulfillment of why he came down to this earth. There are many passages in John where he says, I have come to do a work. Yeah. I have come to accomplish the will of my Father. 
And this is his work, to go into his father's house and unlock the door, prepare the room for you. So again, when we're talking about how the incarnation is him coming down, really, that incarnation wasn't meant just for him to come down. It was meant so that he might bring us up. From the moment of his conception, he was always walking towards the cross and through the cross to the ascension. The cross makes no sense unless if it's just death. It only makes sense in the light of the resurrection and the resurrection into the ascension. And so it's like it's, um, again, it's like it's a concluding moment of the mystery of the incarnation, revealing to us the work of the incarnation, why he came into this world. So it's at the height of the divine economy, the economy of salvation, meaning the term economy means like the plan. God's plan throughout all of history to save you. This is the high moment where he's come to save you. I'll come back to 14 and 15 and 16, actually. But just on that note, it's good to note um, John chapter 3, 14 and following. That's the one where the serpent is raised up. Remember that? If the serpent is raised up in the desert. No one has ascended to heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And Moses, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so on. It's a very beautiful passage. But remember, we're only reading this in the light of the ascension. I'm not... If I go into every detail of it, I won't get past any one of these statements. So we're only reading these passages in the light of the ascension. So sticking to our theme, let us, that verse 13, no one has ascended to, into heaven, but he who descends from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man is to be lifted up, and whoever believes in him may have the eternal life. Again, it's connecting his descent, which would be the incarnation. God descends to become one with us. He becomes a person. He becomes a, yeah, he takes on our humanity. He was a person before, but he takes on our humanity. And that taking on of our humanity is so that he might ascend. And how does he ascend? There's a direct bond here with the cross. Because remember, the serpent is a sign of him crucified. The serpent is him, a sign of him crucified. He's lifted up on the cross. Lifted up on the cross. There's already an ascent when we're talking about the cross. 
And then you can understand then why often when you see paintings of him too, he'll ascend like that, you know? Or even our, our crucifix in our church is the ascended, ascending Christ. And he's like that. Um, it's the same gestures. Of course, now he's not suffering when he's ascending. He's not crucified when he's ascending. But nevertheless, it is the ascended one, it is in gazing upon him, the one who is ascended, that I am saved. Mary Magdalene wasn't. Mary Magdalene wasn't fully realizing yet that he is the ascending one. She was just grasping onto his humanity on his low. But not seeing that he is the Savior, the chosen one. And that we are called to unite with him and follow him to the Father. nice. Let's talk about a few more verses back in chapter 14, at least one more in 14. Chapters 14, 15, and 16, and 17 um, are uh, the dialogues that he's going to give in um, the Last Supper. And they're all very profound about what is the Holy Spirit, who is the Father, um, who is He, and what is the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's good to memorize. It's good to read over and read over so many times that it becomes like second nature. Now, um, again... We're going to look at chapter 14, especially verse 28, but we'll start out with 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you to remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that it do, when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no power over me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go hence. So, Again, I'm stopping in particularly upon verse 28. But notice he's saying that you're going to receive the Counselor, the Holy Spirit. And then he'll say, um, You heard me say to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, 
you would have rejoiced. It's interesting how he switches it. it. Normally, when you hear that he's going to leave you, you're sad. It's totally natural to be sad about like, like that when he's leaving you. But he says here, if you loved me, you would rejoice. And why? Why does he say that? It's a good question to help to deepen the mystery of the ascension. He says, when you ask the reason why, why, why should I be happy that you leave? His response is, because I go to the Father. For the Father is greater than I. Because I am going to the Father. And remember, he just said before that, and I'm preparing a room for you. I go to the Father, and I'm preparing that room for you. So you should rejoice. You should rejoice that I go. And yet, it's those mysterious words that echo. His ascension is this entering of our humanity into the heart of the Father. And so if I understand that, I should rejoice because all of a sudden it's there that my salvation will come. It's from that that my salvation will come. It's from that that all grace flows. It's from that that I receive the Spirit. Similarly, he's going to, well, he's basically going to say the same things or close to the same things in different contexts in chapter 16, verse 5 and 10. Verse 5 on chapter 16, he says, But now I am going to him who sent me, yet none of you asked me where I am going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the counselor will not come to you. That's an interesting statement. That's a powerful statement because there's another thing now. This is the strongest statement that I found that connects the ascension with Pentecost. He says, basically established what I call a causal relationship. If A, then B. He says, if I do not go, I cannot send you the Holy Spirit. It's interesting. He has to go in order to send us the Spirit. And so why? That's a great question. And is it not because his humanity is going to enter into the Trinity? And now through his humanity, it's going to be the new high priest, the new mediator, sending forth the Spirit from his heart? Is it not that our humanity is going to enter into the Trinity in a new way? Our humanity enters into the Trinity in a new way when he ascends. And so when it enters in the Trinity in a new way, it's like the Trinity now enters into the humanity in a new way, comes through him in a new way. 
We'll talk more about that when we get to Hebrews, if we get that far. The book of Hebrews will talk a lot about how he is the high priest. How he is the one that is the mediator. But there's something new with the ascension because now the ascension, I always like little diagrams. Remember that if we're going to talk about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, The Son is eternal. This is not Jesus. Jesus is not, uh, did not always exist. He came, Jesus is the Son, the eternal Son, plus our humanity. Remember, it's the Word made flesh. He, humanity. And so it's like, I always like diagrams, I'm not a good at drawing, though. Okay. Um, It's like our humanity is ascending into the Trinity. Into the Trinity itself. So now our humanity is part of it. So the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. And now our humanity is here. And from there comes the Holy Spirit. The unity of the love of the Father and the Son gives us the Spirit. But that's, that's wonderful. Let it, those who understand, understand. But so our humanity is now a mediator for grace. Our now, humanity now spirates the Spirit. That's why he says... That's why we love the Sacred Heart, actually. And that's why there's a wounded side. It's like their humanity is in a new way giving us the Spirit. So let's keep on going a little bit. We don't get too stuck. Um, look, we'll look real quick at um, the other Gospels, the three other Gospels. Then we'll head to Acts. In the three other Gospels, you're going to have a mention of it. Let's go to Matthew chapter 28. Verse 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the close of the age. So, 
Here, with the ascension, right at the moment of the ascension, there's something nice that's different from John. Very different. Here, at the moment of the ascension, he speaks about his authority. He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Why? Because he is, he is God. And now he's victorious over death. He is resurrected. And he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So it's he's granting us that authority and he's sending us out on mission. So he's establishing his kingdom. The ascension is going to be a moment where he will establish his kingdom and he's going to ascend into heaven as as if he's ascending onto his throne. His throne of authority at the right hand of the Father. Another gospel, we'll talk about that. Mark chapter 16, we'll talk about that. So Mark, it is 14 through 20. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they sat at the table, and he upbraided them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. That's different. Because they did not believe those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to the whole creation. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick, and they will recover. So that much is pretty similar to Matthew. We're pretty close to Matthew. Let's keep on reading and see if there's anything different. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. Ah, there's something different. He's taken up into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the message by signs that attended him. Amen. Why right hand? Right hand is a sign of authority. It's symbolic. It's symbolic primarily of sitting at the author- with the authority of the Father. So there's another aspect. In John, he's going before us in order to prepare our rooms so that we might go with him, right? In Matthew and Mark, He's going up with authority to sit on the throne to reign over his kingdom. And now we are going out under his authority, but with his authority, to preach to all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And there's another connection, too, with Pentecost. Because he's going to give us his authority and send us out. Because he's going up to the right hand of the Father, sitting on his throne... And sending us forth by his spirit. The other one was more priestly. This is more kingly, if you notice. One was more priestly, mediating grace to us. And the other, this one is much more kingly. 
now our, our humanity in the person of Jesus Christ, in the person of the Son, is priest and king and prophet, of course, because he's announcing even here, he's announcing the good news. Luke is going to tell us some more different things along the same line. Luke chapter 24, 44 through 53. Then he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you. While I was still with you, that every, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to the understanding of scriptures and said to them, And thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I send you the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and, continue, and were continually in the temple blessing God. So blessing is the salvific meaning of his departure, meaning his departure is saving, salvific. So as he's going, he's blessing us. There's this whole parting from him, the movement away from them. And the power from on high, the Holy Spirit, the Pentecost, <coughs> the Holy Spirit, the Pentecost, descending forth. You will be given power from on high. There's also the whole aspect about Moses and the prophets, the law. There's much more of an aspect about preaching here. They all have it, for sure. I'm not saying one over the other. But here it seems much more prophet. These are my words which I spoke to you. Notice he's talking about what he's speaking while I was still with you. And everything that, that everything that Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understanding of scriptures. That's very prophetic. The prophet is not um, defined as someone who tells about the future. It's someone who speaks the words of God. So I could speak to you, if I'm speaking about your past, but I'm speaking about what God is saying about your past, that's still a prophet. And speaking about your present, that's still a prophet. It's speaking as a mouthpiece of God. That's prophecy. As a mouthpiece of God. And here, 
He is opening their minds to the Scriptures. He's helping them understand the Word of God. It's interesting. And then, once they know that, they go forth with great joy. The whole aspect about it ends with great joy in Jerusalem. Huge difference from how they were before that. Are you good so far? Okay. Going quick, but hopefully some of the things might be a little obscure for you, but in general, I think you're still able to follow very much. I hope, right? Yeah, okay, good. Um, let's turn to the famous one, Acts. That's the famous one. When you think of ascension, you should think of the book of Acts. That's where you have the long passage on it, the book of Acts. Okay, uh, we'll start just from the beginning. We'll read 1-1. In the first book, O Theophilus, the first book, what is that? That's Luke. He wrote two books. Sorry, yeah, Luke wrote two books. He wrote Luke and Acts. So he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, Theophilus, he's talking about the, the book of Luke. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commandment through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his passion by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking of the kingdom of God. Okay, that's something new. I haven't seen that elsewhere. 40 days, it says. So that's if we're walking through the basilica, we found another thing that's new. There. And while staying with them, he charged them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but before many days you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of, to Israel? Very important. That's a very important line. They're still thinking he's going to become a king like um, Caesar. They're still thinking up until this moment. Okay, now he's resurrected, so he's going to be a new David, a new Solomon. He's going to be a new king, that's a temporal king, like Caesar was, but just better because he's Israel. Mm-hmm. You know? And so they're still thinking on that line. They haven't got it yet. He was just crucified. He just rose from the dead. And they still haven't 
God and that his kingdom is not of this world. He said to them, but wait, before I go on any further, um, that also means, though, that this is still in the context of him establishing his kingdom. Even if it's a negative, so they're wrong about the way they're understanding kingdom, they are right that he is establishing his kingdom. If that makes sense. They're wrong about the way he's establishing it, but they are right on the fact that he is establishing his kingdom now. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. That's another line that's near. It's some, he's stating already, there's something here that is in the establishment of the kingdom that is beyond time and space. It's like God's time is not our time. God's time is eternal. So we would speak about a thousand years being a blink of an eye. So Jesus is going to say, it is not for you to know the times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. It is not for you to worry about whether or not now we're going to go defeat Caesar. That's not for you to worry about. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. So he, he directs us to what we should be looking at. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So that's what we should be looking at. Is not worrying about the whole aspect about time. And he's also going to cover space here. Because it's Jerusalem, Samaria, Jerusalem, Israel, Samaria, and the whole world. And the whole world. So it's covering all, it's covering all space. All space, too. And when he had said this, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. A, it's interesting, that's where the cloud comes in. I, didn't, I don't remember any other passage that speaks about him going up and a cloud took him out of the sight. This is the one that talks about this. And that's reminiscent of many things in Scripture. For example, um, the Son of Man coming in the clouds in Daniel. That's the coming in the clouds. You also have all the emphasis of the cloud on the top of the mountain with Moses. And the descent of the cloud whenever Moses was seeing God face to face. And there are many passages in between. It's a very important symbol. It's often the power of God, the symbol of God's presence, the Shekinah, the Holy Spirit coming down upon the, upon the mountain. Verse 10, And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. 
there's another statement. What goes up must come down. He will come again. He will come again. Hence the importance of the clouds. And Daniel, Daniel always spoke about the Son of Man coming in clouds in final judgment. In the final judgment. And notice, this is a happy coming. Because they're looking up, is he going to come back? Is he going to come back? They want him to come back. <laughs> you know? They're not saying, oh, that he might not come back. It's a happy coming back. But it's also interesting that these two angels or men or Moses and Elijah or I don't know what they are, um, these two angels, they're going to look at them and say that very interesting statement. Why are you looking up into heaven? It seems obvious why they're looking up into heaven. That seems obvious. I'd be looking up into heaven too. That's obvious. They're saying like, why are you looking up into heaven? And then what? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven, he's going to come back in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Well, then I'd be looking again. I'd be looking more. If you, say, if you tell me you say he's coming back, okay, when? Okay, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. One of my favorite stories was of a priest who um, lived his whole life for God, and towards the end of his life he had dementia. And one of the brothers was taking care of him and sleeping in the room right above him. And he... Um, he, one night, saw the lights going on and off, on and off, on and off, and on and off. And he didn't know why, but he knew something. he was doing something. And he heard noises. He was speaking. So he opened up his window. The brother did. He's up on the floor above. And looked down, and he saw uh, this uh, priest like this with his light, with the light switch right here with him standing outside the door saying, Come, my love, come. And he's doing light signals into the sky with his light, with light going on and off. On and off. That was a cute, really beautiful, really beautiful. It would be a good way to die, right? My last, my last year of my life doing things like that in dementia. That would be great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the, the, nevertheless, nevertheless, um, that desire for his coming, that desire for his coming and the fact that he has gone before us, is present here too, but here he has given us his authority, sending us forth on a mission. And they, they know that, so they're going to return right away to Jerusalem. So part of the reason why he's saying, why are you looking up into heaven? Saying, don't worry, he's going to come back. He's going to come back right now. You have a role. You have a mission. And remember what that was. They have to wait to be baptized in the Spirit. And when they're baptized in the Spirit, they're going to go out into their mission, which is a kingly mission. They have to go out and conquer the kingdom. Conquer the kingdom. Conquer souls. Remember what they had just asked. Is it, is it now that you're going to establish the kingdom? So why are you looking up into heaven? You should be going out to all the nations. St. Paul, um, I... If I, I would rather go, but if I stay, I stay for you. Is that how it goes? It's a verse like that. If I, when St. Paul speaks about how he would like to, be, to go up to heaven, but if he would like to stay, he would like to stay for your sake, so that he might preach the more and save more souls or bring more souls to Christ. That's another aspect of Acts. 
and another aspect of the ascension. So in this, in this book, there's a lot. Notice we, what were some of the things that I brought up that were a little bit different. Um, there is the whole aspect about time and space. That was, that was something that was very different. Um, what were some of the other ones? The 40 days? It's also very symbolic, 40 days, right? The 40 days in the desert is the obvious one, right? And the encounter, entering into the promised land after 40 days, you enter in the promised land. And so Jesus walks before us and enters the promised land. The whole aspect about the kingdom, that's present elsewhere. But I just like here in the way that he says it, is it now that you're going to establish the kingdom? I don't find that anywhere else. I didn't find that anywhere else where they're asking it right at the moment of the ascension. Are you going to establish the kingdom? They're still making the mistake up in the very, very end. Very, very end. And so that's also very interesting. The whole aspect about the Holy Spirit and the place of the Holy Spirit is more explicit in this passage. Maybe not more explicit than John, but more explicit than Matthew, Matthew and Mark, for sure. John is different. So it's hard to say it's more explicit. It's just different. John, notice, he's not going to emphasize as much the priestly, well, the priestly, yes, the royal and the prophetic side of it. It's going to be much more on the side of um, going to prepare the room for you. It's almost more contemplative right away. So that you might dwell in the heart of the Father. I go to my Father. John will emphasize much more the fact of Father. And you are my friend. You are my brother. You are now sons of the Father. Sons and daughters. So I'm preparing a room for you. It's a whole other way of looking at it. We have a little bit more time. No, not much. We'll go straight to Hebrews. Some other ones that you may want to note that are interesting. If you want to look at kingship and interceding, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 34. A very important verse for the right hand of God is Psalm 110, verse 1. But also, coming back to that kingship, it would be 1 Peter 3.22 is another one. Again, 1 Peter 3.22, Romans chapter 8, verse 34, Psalm 110. Those are ones I would have, I mean, if we had all the time in the world, I'd go through, but Hebrews is better. There's more to it. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. There's a few of these letters and books where the prologue is incredible. Um, And Hebrews, is the prologue is incredible too, the first few verses. In many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, 
He has spoken to us by a Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature, upholding the universe by his word of power. When he had made purification sorry when he had made purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he had obtained is more excellent than theirs now there's a lot to this this is a very deep deep passage so we're only going to look at again the part on the ascension okay so as to not get caught up because this a whole hour could be spent on these few verses. They're very beautiful. Now, I'm especially going to look at um, that part at the end of verse 3. where Because in the, ver- the beginning of verse 3, it's going to talk about the incarnation and who he is. The end is going to say, when he had made purification for sins... When was that? That was when he sacrificed. That was the cross, the purification of sins. That's when he did the sacrificial act of a high priest, you know, where the lamb was sacrificed in our stead, the new Passover lamb. So when the purification for sins had been done, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. having become much superior to angels. Now there, we have an important aspect. He is going to become the priest. If anything, this book, Hebrews, is talking about the high priesthood of Christ. It's a very liturgical book. Where he makes purification for sins. Now, high priest is going to be the next theme. It's going to develop it a whole lot more in the next couple chapters. Uh, was Jesus always um, not much superior to the angels? It says having become as much superior. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he had obtained is more excellent than theirs. For to what angel did God ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be my, to me a son. And as you keep on reading, it makes a little bit more sense. That's why I was bringing it forward a little bit more. Um, in showing us this, we're seeing how he is superior to the angels is another way of putting it. He has, in becoming high priest and sitting at the right hand of the Father, we now have proof that he is superior to the angels. It doesn't mean that he wasn't before, but we now have proof that he is superior to the angels. From our perspective, we, if we're looking for evidence, he has saved us, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father. Well, his humanity was always more superior than the angels, like the first question you asked. 
from the moment that it existed, it was always more superior on a metaphysical level. So it's a great question. For that reason, you're, that's the reason why you're asking it. Um, it was always more superior. But they're stating it this way because from our perspective, if we're looking for signs of it, the proof of this is when we see that, well, one of the proofs, is when we see that he has saved us from our sins and is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, opened up the gates of heaven for us. So it's more from our perspective, if we're looking for the evidence, we have seen that now he is far superior. Because here he's giving an argument for the Jews. And from the liturgical point of view, saying he is the new high priest, and he is now superior to the angels. And he's going to go on and talk about the angels. Chapter 4, verse 14. And then we'll see if we can finish with that. 4, verse 14 through 5 to verse 10. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, who let us, no, let us hold fast to our confession. So there you have literally, it's calling him high priest, who's passed through the heavens. For we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sinning. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to the act on to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins he can deal he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness because of this he is bound to offer sacrifice for his own sins as well as those of, of the people And one does not take the honor upon himself, but he is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And as he says also in another place, Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard for his godly fear. Although he was son, was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. A very nice passage where it's talking above all about how Christ is our high priest and giving arguments therefore. And high priests, again, a priest is a mediator between God and man. He offers sacrifices in atonement for us. The difference between 
the high priest uh, before is that the high priest had sin. This high priest is able to offer one offering for all time in offering himself for he was and he was without sin. And note that this high priest is an eternal offering, is eternally high priest. We can always go to him in his throne and receive mercy. Mm-hmm. And it comes especially from Hebrew, yeah. Hebrews. How did the Jews affect high priests? Down the lineage of Aaron, uh, right? And how did they choose which one was which? Is inherited, yeah. So if Christ, so what he's saying here is that God has chosen Jesus. Very much so. And he wasn't part of the inheritance. That's why he's according to the order of Melchizedek. Because Melchizedek was, with, was a king and a priest, but did not have the lineage. He was a po- appointed king and priest without lineage. That's why we speak about the order of Melchizedek. It's not because he descends from Melchizedek, but it's because Melchizedek is a sign of the priesthood outside of the, um, the genetic lineage. And so, again, it's a nice way of going through it and looking through all the different aspects. And let's come back and summarize a little bit. We start out with some of the most profound texts. We start out with John. John, above all, is not priest, prophet, and king. It's above all, son. Going to dwell in the heart of the Father. It's not not above all, kingdom. It's above all uh, resting in the home of the Father where he's preparing a room for you. He is an advocate for us and he's sending another advocate, his spirit. So he has to go to the Father to advocate for us and to send his advocate. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we find the kingship of Christ becoming very important. Also the prophetic side of Christ, opening up the scriptures and opening up what is the will of God and the word of God. In Hebrews, we're going to find how it is very explicit there how he is priest. The ascended Christ is priest. In Acts, we find how the ascension is beyond time. It's like when what goes up must come down. The when. It's not for us to worry about that. It's not for us to worry about that. It is for us to go out and preach the good news. We also found in the 40 days a number that's highly symbolic that meant that he was with us for the right amount of time, the time that God wanted, that God had prepared in order 
for us to be prepared. And so in the end, we find that the ascension is really the concluding moment of the mystery of the incarnation. It's a concluding moment of the reason why Christ came into this earth. He came into this earth in order to ascend to the Father. And why? To prepare a room for us. So that as high priests, he might mediate mercy to us. That he might send forth his spirit into our hearts. So that we might enter into heaven, the heavenly intimacy with God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus.